morning, Petaluma. Good morning, Petaluma. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, KPCA.FM online. And this is Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, coming to you again with this opportunity we have to meet people from our community who are leaders, who are helping create a new sense of life for people. Uh, as always, my goal is to let us know that our heroes are not only on the sports uh, arena, but also right here in our midst, although I guess the Warriors did pretty well last night. They <laughs> seem to do it. Uh, I want to welcome to our studio this morning uh, Daniel Green, who is the rector of St. John's Episcopal Church here in Petaluma. It's great to have you here with us this morning. Welcome. Well, thank you, Ted. I'm very pleased to be here. And uh, as always, I want to begin this conversation with you by, first of all, acknowledging that we've known each other for quite a while here and our work together here in Petaluma. Uh, I've always admired your uh, stances and your positions in the community and recognizing what's important for you. And I hope we'll get to share some of that with the greater community as we talk for these few minutes this morning. So before we get into some of the community stuff, could you tell us a little bit about you and where you came from and what brought you to Petaluma, the church you're in, and all of that? You can start sure. wherever you want. Okay. Well, um, I've been here for almost eight years came in 2010 uh, with my wife, Meg, who's a uh, psychotherapist in private practice here in town, and our daughter, Risa, who has uh, uh, been educated in the Petaluma Public Schools and will be beginning at Casa Grande High School in the fall. And uh, we came here from uh, the central coast of California. And before that, uh, we were in Berkeley and San Francisco. I've lived in the kind of greater Bay Area my whole adult life, and I'm a native Californian. And uh, uh, used to live in Marin County, and that's where I first uh, learned of the existence of Petaluma. And uh, years ago, identified it as a community that seemed like it would be a nice place to live. So when the opportunity arose to come here and uh, help to guide a, uh, an Episcopal church that was um, rebuilding in the aftermath of a, of a kind of disastrous split in the congregation, I seized the opportunity. And uh, it's been a lot of work and a great deal of joy, and we really, really love being here. Well, it's, uh, yes, yeah, so we'll get back to the church and the split. I noticed uh, in your biography that you spent some time in the Zen Center. Mm -hmm. uh, was part of your journey. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, going from what we would look at in America often as Zen being an alternative to the religious system in America where there are mainline churches, mm -hmm. which you ultimately joined the mainline church. Mm -hmm. uh, how was that part of the journey for you? And what led you into the Episcopal Church? Well, I... Uh, Indeed, spent uh, about uh, seven years uh, 
exploring, you know, kind of uh, some of the religious subcultures, you might say, of uh, California. And I was drawn to Eastern religion in my uh, young teens as an alternative to the Christian uh, upbringing that I'd had, which... As Christian upbringings go, it's not particularly traumatic, I must say. Um, But uh, at a certain point, kind of failed to connect with me. And uh, so uh, after studying religion um, in a dilettante-ish kind of way in college, I decided that I really needed to experience uh, something directly uh, in the way of um, uh, committed religious practice, and um, I knew of Zen Buddhism and uh, through my studies and knew of the San Francisco Zen Center, uh, and that's a long story, which I won't go into now, but anyway, I came uh, at the age of 22, I came back out to California and uh, went to work as a, an organic farmer and to practice Zen meditation at the Green Gulch Farm Zen Temple and ended up uh, spending a number of years there, um, and uh, eventually, uh, it was really in the course of uh, being presented with the opportunity to be ordained as a Buddhist priest and commit my life to being a teacher and you know priest in that tradition that I realized I still had, as I like to say, unfinished business with uh, God and the Bible and Jesus and all that. So uh, it was at that point that I uh, decided I needed to go back to church um, because, again, uh, for me, you know, being a religious person is not so much about what you believe, although obviously that's important, but it's about how you live and how you practice. So, and the Episcopal Church uh, was just kind of an educated guess on my part as the place that uh, I would find a, you know, kind of a congenial uh, location within the Christian universe, and my guess proved correct. <laughs> you're obviously there. Mm-hmm. You use this term, uh, religious person, and <clears throat> I used to think uh, when I was younger, mm-hmm. and I had decided to go into the rabbinate when I was actually 14, Mm. I decided that that was the course I wanted to take. I took a little journey aside uh, later on in the first year of college, but but it seems to me that I, I also used to think that, gee, if I'd born, been born into an Episcopal family, I would have been an Episcopal priest, or mm-hmm. if I, that there's something innate uh, or something that happens inside some of us that takes us on that spiritual journey of some sort, mm-hmm. and whether it be within the Jewish tradition in which I was raised and obviously am still part of, uh, your tradition, the Christian traditions that you followed or anybody else, that they would be, that's, that's where they would end up, mm-hmm. no matter what. Do you think there is that such a thing as that religious person that needs to find that way in life? Well, I mean, in my own case, I think uh, the answer would be yes. You know, it took me a long time uh, to kind of recognize and accept that I had that vocation. You know, that's the term that we use. Um, but, you know, looking back, I mean, you know, as a kid uh, 
going to church with my family when the rest of the kids would go downstairs to Sunday school. I mean, I tried that a few times and then decided that I actually preferred to remain upstairs and hear the sermon, and I liked the uh, hymns that the adults sang better than the songs that we sang in Sunday school, which just didn't seem as... I don't know, stirring and uh, theologically meaty as the, uh, right, right. <laughs> the grown-up hymns. <laughs> so anyway, you know, I was, uh, yeah, and just, uh, just always had this sense of, you know, uh, that there was more to my life and that I needed to find out what that was and, and pursue it. Um, and, uh so when you hear the word religious today, what does that mean for you? Because obviously in our American culture, certainly in this part of the world, mm-hmm. uh, being religious is being in another category of being. Mm. And what, mm-hmm. what's that like for you? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, for me, what it means in practical terms, I guess, is that I belong to a, a religious community, a religious tradition, and I, you know, do a religious practice within that tradition. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, a lot of people prefer the term spiritual practice uh, nowadays. And, I, you know, I use that term myself and understand, you know, the appeal. But I really have tried to reclaim the word religion in a positive sense because, um I think, uh, <coughs> well, I like the etymology of it, for one thing. Uh, you know, it means uh, literally re-back, and ligere is a Latin verb that means to bind. So it's, you know, binding oneself back to um, uh, reality, in a way, uh, a re- reality that's larger than oneself. And we are not simply spiritual uh, beings, but we are also, you know, uh, embodied beings, and uh, so spiritual doesn't actually, to me, doesn't actually say as much as uh, the word religious, the word religious does. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a difficult term these days, and mm-hmm. uh, thank you for trying to reclaim what it really could mean, and it's an important mm-hmm. thing for our world. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the church now. You came here, mm-hmm. and the St. John's Episcopal had experienced a split. Mm-hmm. And right. um, what was your process of healing like when you came to, with them? Well, the process was, you know, underway already when I arrived. Um, the Episcopal congregation moved back into the historic parish property there at the corner of Fifth and C in. July of 2009, <clears throat> and uh, a couple of uh, there'd been a couple of pastors working with that congregation before I arrived who'd done some really good work. Um, so, uh, but I think you know, a first step that I took and that my wife and I took together was that we bought a home here in Petaluma. Um, and that was a, a just not an incidental thing for us to do because it was a way of communicating that we were invested in in making this uh, small you know uh, rebuilding congregation work and and uh, sort of reestablishing a sense of uh, 
you know, permanency about it. And um, so I think that's been a lot of it is just to project a sense of uh, confidence and optimism and that we're, we're here for a reason. God, you know, called this uh, community back into life for a reason. And so let's find out what that reason is and uh, seek to, to really live into it as fully as we can. So it must have been a pretty difficult period, and then eventually you came back into the building, right? Was that was well? Yeah, that had happened a year before, before I came. Before you came, okay. yeah, that had happened before yeah. you came. Yeah. yeah, which you know, it's a it's a tremendous asset to have this uh, you know, beautiful, architecturally significant uh, church building, and you know, an ample. Uh, parish hall and administrative uh, building next to it, um, and it's uh, you know a lot of responsibility. Yeah, so so you know we started doing um, you know small steps uh, that were community building exercises for us uh, as a way of um, taking that responsibility on. So we. We had uh, some members of our congregation who uh, knew how to do an estate sale and organized for, uh, I want to say, three years consecutively. Uh, we had these estate sales that were actually very successful, and we raised a bunch of money, and we gave some of it away um, to support COTS because I felt that was important, uh, that we not just raise money for ourselves, but that we always, you know, kind of tithe to the community. But then also we um, then reinvested that money uh, into uh, refurbishing our parish hall and making um, <clears throat> it a more attractive space for the community to gather. And now we have all kinds of things going on in there. Um, we've made it handicapped accessible, and we have... You know, square dances and Boy Scout uh, meetings and uh, just all kinds of community activities happening in that space. And we've just kind of gone from there in terms of bit by bit, um, uh, you know, bringing our, uh, our real property uh, back up to snuff, but always in the process, you know, uh, rebuilding our community at the same time. Right. Well, that that project helps to rebuild community exactly. because it takes yeah. people devoted to the community mm-hmm. to want to make their living space uh, open and welcoming for other people to come in. So yeah. that's an important part. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, it, when I have been at your service a couple of times, uh, I the, the Episcopal Church is... Um, considered high church? Is it considered, is that the term we would use? Am I using a correct term? That is one term that people use. Uh, actually, within the Episcopal tradition, people will talk about high, you know, broad or low Episcopal churches, but we're, we're a liturgical church. Right, That's right. kind of a That's what it means to me when term. I hear it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, it's a technical so, term, liturgical. Yeah. So I noticed, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I saw you doing your job uh, mm-hmm. up there and leading the congregation in, right. the, in the liturgy of the uh, Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. What also struck me is that, knowing you already, uh, 
from those moments of liturgy, those are your springboards for going out into the community and doing social justice work in whatever way you can mm-hmm. and finding important ways to express yourself, your church's intent in terms of making a better world. Mm-hmm. What are some of those projects that you've taken on over these years that you've been here uh, that engage has engaged you with the social justice part of our world? Mm-hmm. Well, Again, before I even came, uh, members of St. John's uh, formed a partnership with your congregation and, and others on the west side of Petaluma to um, do the interfaith food pantry that happens every Thursday uh, at 5 over at Elam Lutheran. Um, and that's something we've remained committed to and helped to sustain. Uh, we've, as I mentioned in passing before, we've um, done quite a bit of work with COTS. You know, we're really fortunate in our community that uh, there are outstanding uh, uh, organizations in Petaluma that are doing a lot of the work that in many uh, communities around the country are being done by faith communities because there's nobody else to do them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, like such as COTS or the Petaluma People Services Center or whatever. And, you know, we're fortunate in that we don't, uh, those groups are up and running and supported broadly across the community. And it isn't, you know, all the burden isn't falling on faith communities to to make sure that um, the most vulnerable people in the community are just falling through the cracks. But we make it a point to support those organizations. and then we've gotten involved um, uh, with, um, we've had members who, who are very active in a variety of um, uh, human rights kinds of work in Sonoma County. We have had people participate in um, working with the North Bay Organizing Project in voter education drives in the community um, uh, where... Uh, uh, involved right now in planning for a interfaith habitat for humanity um, project, and you know a lot of I feel myself as a as a pastor, a lot of my work is um, not so much to um, get out there and you know do that stuff in the community. Although I tr- do try to lead by example to a certain amount, but uh, extent. But it's also you know to encourage others to uh, to do that work. I mean, in our in our tradition, we have a very fulsome sense of the importance of uh, the laity in uh, the church as being the primary, you know, ministers of the church out in the community doing uh, good work. And uh, so, <coughs> you know, it's... Uh, we don't do our uh, our good deeds uh, vicariously through the ordained person. It's the ordained person's job to kind of support and encourage the lay people to get out there and do what they do. Yeah, that, that notion is really uh, an important one. And I would say uh, the same thing uh, from the rabbinate point of view. I see myself as a facilitator of uh, people doing social justice work and doing as much as I can in the same way. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that took me out of the pulpit uh, in 
the early stages of my life out of congregational work was exactly what you just identified, mm. the notion that the rabbi should do this. We don't have to do it, but mm-hmm. we pay him. Right. And he's the one who should be uh, doing these things. Mm-hmm. And I've been told that. I mean, yeah. physically, people have said that to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not responsible uh, as a member of the community to do this. We, You're here to do it for me. And that really... That kind of uh, barrier that was set up was really offensive, morally and religiously, spiritually offensive. That mm-hmm. we're in a community together; all of us are in this community together. Mm-hmm. And while it does take leaders, I believe, like you and like I'm doing, and to try to encourage people to use the wisdom of our traditions to teach about it and about how we should act, but it does take everybody to participate in it, and not just the expectation that the pastor is going to be out there. Uh, doing it for us and represent. Yeah. Now we can be representative when we're out mm-hmm. there, but all the doing can't be in our hands. I think that's an important. Thank you for bringing that up because that pushes a little button inside of me <laughs> of, of memory uh-huh. uh, where all that has happened. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's a, a widely shared experience. You know, people who are in our profession is that misconception, perhaps, that you know that. Uh, it's the ordained person's job to, you know, do that work on behalf of, you know, the the religious consumers in the in the pews. So right, the consumers in the pews. So, one of the things I, I, I believe I talked about with other guests on the show was this notion of, of truth. When people hear this word religion, mm. it sparks mm-hmm. the notion in their minds. Well, those people think they have the truth. Mm. What is what for you? What does that word true truth mean? Mm. Um, I, I I told the story I think when uh, Patrick Torbett was here uh, that I was giving a lecture on Judaism and somebody sitting with a Bible in the front row raised his hand and said, "Okay, Rabbi, thank you, but when are you going to start telling the truth?" Pointing to his copy of the New Testament <laughs> in front of him. So you know, uh-huh. yeah. <clears throat> well, you know. Um, I guess I think of the truth uh, as a way. So, you know, I mean, one uh, text in the New Testament that's often quoted as a way of sort of claiming, you know, Christian supremacy is when Jesus says to his disciples, um, you know the way to the Father, meaning, you know, sort of the the transcendent, you know, Godhead, uh, and uh, and then uh, one of his disciples says, "Well, Lord, we don't know uh, the Father, so how do we know the way?" And then Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life," which is then, you know, people often interpret that in, ex- in an uh, exclusive kind of way that what Jesus is saying, you know, is that it's um, you have to join, you know. Our religion, or you're lost. Um, but I think you know if we really live with the idea that you know that uh, the truth is a way, and it's a way of life, um, that uh, we can't claim to have arrived at it. It's more like um, uh, you know uh, a lodestar or something that um, gives us a direction in life. Uh, uh, and um, a great sense of, you know, perhaps deep 
contentment when we feel like we're really on the way and our sense of the truth is growing and, and has some, uh, some you know, lasting meaning to it. But, um, but we can't ever claim to have really arrived at it, um, you know, let alone to you know, be able to hold up a book and say it's all in this book. Yeah, so uh, for me, the the word, of course, often evokes the create the notion that here's the truth. Anybody who doesn't follow this is another, mm. is the other in the world, and that right. creates the gap in humanity that has resulted in chaos. That mm-hmm. uh, you know, on one hand, religion itself helps to calm and to keep people together and create community and all kinds of good things. Mm-hmm. but also has the capability of creating the view of the world that everybody is the other. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get into deep trouble in our world. That's where we get into mm-hmm. deep trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of the truth is, you know, that it that we have to, I think, accept, and, and Christians have had a particularly hard time with this, I think, is that um, it shows up in these... Uh, strange forms mm. <laughs> that we don't understand and we can't understand except by entering into dialogue with the people who are you know, offering it to us in a different way that we don't recognize, which doesn't mean that we you know, surrender our own truth. We have to really remain centered in that, and, um, but part of how we you know, deepen our sense of the truth is by the encounter with uh, people who hold a different truth and you know, if we really believe that uh, God created, you know, the whole world, uh, God must have had some good reason for creating truth in these different forms and expressions to help us, you know, learn how to hold our own truth in a more expansive and generous kind of way. And there are indeed many forms and expressions of this. And I know that you have been very involved in reaching out to the community faith, of different backgrounds, uh, the Islamic Center, the, the whole community, mm-hmm. to try to show that our world needs to be grounded in, in a, a faith that recognizes the godliness in all human beings. And I want to thank you so much for being here with us this it's morning my pleasure. on our program, talking with Rabbi Ted and uh, giving us the opportunity to learn about you and the gifts that you are bringing uh, to your community. In our next segment, you'll be hearing from Rory Noguchi, who is Program and Communications Coordinator at B'nai Israel Jewish Center. You'll get to meet her in a few minutes. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCALP, Petaluma, California.
Welcome back, Petaluma. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. And this is Rabbi Ted Feldman, Rabbi of the Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, Chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, back for our second segment today. And I want to welcome into the studio Rory Noguchi, who has just begun her work as the Program and Communications Coordinator at B'nai Israel Jewish Center. So we get to talk to each other very frequently. So this time we're going to be doing it uh, in front of microphones. So welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, is this your first time on the radio? It is. It is. Okay. Uh, there'll be a line waiting outside for autographs when you're finished with this little discussion we're going to have. Okay. I figured I'd yeah, dress for the papara. Yeah, they're uh, they're already lining up out there right side right now. <laughs> okay. yeah. So um, one of my goals uh, uh, in this program, as I explained to you and I explain on the air all the time, is to have our community meet different people from all different walks of life here in town who are trying to make a little difference in our world and make our world better and uh, really are the heroes of everyday life. Uh, uh, and as I pointed out in the first segment, the warriors are the heroes today uh, because of their uh, wonderful victory last night. So we can celebrate that. Uh, what line do I usually use for that? Uh, where there's life, there's hoop. Isn't mm-hmm. that true? Okay. Let's hear it for the Warriors. Okay. What? <laughs> okay, Rory, you don't have to comment on that one. It's okay. So um, I guess one question I would like to start with is, how did you get connected to Jewish life? And uh, Noguchi certainly isn't a, a Jewish name, or traditionally, as far as we know. So how did this come about for you? <clears throat> That's true. Uh, Noguchi isn't a Jewish name. Um, it's It's... Japanese, and my my husband is half Japanese. Um, I my family is originally from New Jersey. I lived in New Jersey until I was eight years old, and um, we are part of a very large and rich Jewish community there. And uh, we were members of the local temple, and it's even living in New Jersey. If you're Jewish, even if you don't participate in the Jewish community, it's just it's all around, and it's such a fundamental part of um, how everything operates there. For example, um, schools are closed for Jewish holidays, um, so there's no, like, requesting off and making up work and things like that. Um, or everyone knows that some friends or neighbors or parents um, at certain times of the year leave early from work on Friday um, to observe Shabbat, so they're home for that. Um, so, yeah, I'm from New Jersey and had a great... Um, sort of introduction to Jewish life from there. Um, And then our family moved to California in 1989. Uh, We moved to San Diego, which also has a large Jewish population, but it was definitely different. Uh, California, well, San Diego is definitely very spread out, um, and everyone's sort of from somewhere else. Maybe not everyone's from somewhere else, but at times it seemed like that. Um, And we didn't join the temple right away. And it was kind of a time for me to think about where I fit in. Um, and I had um, my best friends from growing up, or from third grade when we moved to California, are still my best friends. Um, 
and three of the six are Jewish. Um, and they were members of temples, and we weren't at first. And it got me started thinking, um, am I Jewish enough? And it's kind of been like an exploration from there. Um, and ultimately, I realized I am. <laughs> we are. Um, but yeah, so I grew up in California and um, went to college at Santa Cruz and met my husband there. And I remember calling my grandma and telling her that I met, you know, the one. And she said, um, is he Jewish? I said, oh. I said, no, Grandma, he's not Jewish. And she said, well, and there is, there is a, a pause, and she said, well, we're all God's children. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just said so much about um, what it means to be Jewish, um, to accept all kinds of people. Um, so anyway, then we moved to Petaluma, and we're looking for um, a community to dive into and a preschool for our eldest son, who's in first grade now. Um, and we found B'nai Israel in the preschool gone Israel. And that, that's, that's the story that, bring, that brings you here. Yes. So uh, obviously one of the uh, issues in, in the community, both for the churches, organizations in general, is that younger adults, such mm-hmm. as you, are not generally attaching themselves uh, to churches, synagogues, uh, organizations that were traditionally brought together in order to make a sense of community. So here you are, part of it, and you're on our board of directors, too. You were that before you started doing the professional part of what you're doing. And so how, what's your take on all this? What do you think... What do you think that world will look like? You know, I don't know, and I'm still kind of developing um, and learning to understand because I realize that um, my point of view is in some ways um, different from some people my age, young families in this community, interfaith families in this community, at least those who I've met. Um, I'm coming from a perspective of really wanting to... um, commit and be a part of a um, stable community that my kids can grow up in. Um, And I know I'm probably alike every parent in that way, that they want that for their families too. Um, I think in some ways our culture is so much about individuality, and I do believe that we are all individuals. Um, But I think the big picture is that we're all more alike than different. Um, and I'm talking about Jews, but I'm also talking about everyone. Um, and I think it's really important to have a community and show um, our kids that we're a part of a bigger, supportive thing in life. Um, and I'm hopeful that in my role I can help um, other families find community, however they define that. Um, But I do think the emphasis on individuality makes it harder for people to commit to joining a synagogue, for example. Um, But um, I'm kind of working on how to navigate that. I was thinking, in fact, um, uh, Reverend Green was here in the first segment, and we had a little clergy meeting, and we were talking yesterday about younger families' engagement, etc., and uh, we have created a society that not only is um, materialistic or secular, etc., 
uh, but it's based on the individual. And it's based on the individual because we are set up to be in competition with each other. I mean, our capitalist economy and the way we're trained, uh, the moment you get your degree for whatever it is, you're now in competition with your classmates for jobs, for success, for all kinds of things. So how can you not work on self-preservation and being this individual? Yet throughout history, uh, human beings have recognized that, recognized that we need each other. We need that sense of community. And it really is a challenge to uh, put together individuality and community. Because the moment you come into community, you do have to give up a little bit of your individuality. Because the community may do something that it's not quite your thing or whatever. But sometimes you have to put yourself in there. So that, that gets complicated, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I think my background is actually in advertising, and I think something just popped up in my mind, this idea almost with social media that um, people have sort of branded themselves. And I think sometimes there um, might be a concern, just like you said, that maybe an organization they're a part of might do a specific thing that's not their particular flavor. Um and maybe there's some concern about affiliating um, in some way. But something that I really like about BIJC is that it's so open. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of ways to um, be a part of it. And, you, you know, some people I've met there are extremely spiritual. Some people are um, secular and extremely political and focused on social justice. Some people are super into yoga. Um, some people who go there aren't Jewish, but just love the preschool. Um, yeah, so it takes a whole world that can be come in our doors, right? In that sense, absolutely. So when I when I first came to the community, uh, I had suggested that uh, B'nai Israel, which at that point was referred to as Congregation B'nai Israel, uh, change its name to B'nai Israel Jewish Center, and that was done for a couple of reasons. One is that the origins of the building and of the community, this was the Petaluma Jewish Community Center. So for some of the older generation at that point, going to the center was how they referred to the institution and the building, because it was a place where all different kinds of people came together. The religious people went to services, the, the, the Yiddishists uh, had their programs, and they had a folk course and all kinds of things. So back in 2006, the board voted to change the name. And the word does imply that this is to be more than just a place of prayer and of study. It's a place for people to come together, to create a supportive environment, to laugh together, to cry together if we have to. Uh, that's the kind of place we, we, uh, we believe our community wants uh, and we uh, aspire to be. Um, when you came into this position, which is just recently, but you've been on the board for a while and uh, watching, uh, watching us grow, um, what did you envision? What was your vision of what this place would be like for you? When I became a part of BIJC, when I started getting involved, uh, my goal was... I didn't have a clear vision, but my idea was to have it be 
a place for our family together or as individuals that was kind of like a home, outside of home, outside of school, just another place where we belong and where we're a part of and where when we go to Trader Joe's or to the beach or sometimes even in San Francisco, um, we run into people we know from the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny, I was, and I know I discussed this with you, but I was a little nervous about dipping my toe in the water of getting involved more than being just a congregant. Um, but once I stepped in with both feet, I realized that this is what I want to do and that it, I was expanding myself to create what I envisioned. So you had referred before to a little bit to social media and just uh, in general before we bring it back home, so to speak. Uh, how do you feel as a young person about social media? Are, do you like it? Is it? Are you happy it's there? Is it a burden? Is it? A, you know, for me and my generation, it's it's there and we use it, but it's it's a little bit. We got to keep our distance from it. Yeah, um, I honestly have a lot of conflicted feelings. Uh, definitely more so now as a parent. Um, I think it's a great way to share information and pictures and keep connected with people. Um, I think there are a lot of challenges, and I'm interested slash scared, but very hopeful about how it will sort of mutate and what it might look like in five or ten years. I think the biggest um, the biggest worry for me about social media is the value, I mean, I know the value to the company is selling advertising and so forth, but the value to the individual of joining is getting other people, like to be a successful person or entity on social media, um, other people um, like you or follow you or um, approve of you. And I think um, that feeds into the, um, the sometimes the sense of um, alienation in such an individual-driven culture. Um, so I, I feel conflicted. I'm, I'm on Facebook, and I, I like it, and I like sharing pictures and seeing other people's pictures, but there's always the, um, oh, my gosh, I posted a picture, and nobody likes it. Or, oh, wow, look at their family's month-long trip through Europe, and we're just... Sitting here at home. Right, right playing in the kiddie pool in the backyard. Right. Um, so it's complicated. It is complicated, and it's a whole new thing. Uh, sometimes uh, I think that um, uh, that our technology, uh, while on one hand people get connected on social media, it's also put a wall up because uh, the main connection is conversation and people, uh, groups of people in a room together, learning together, talking together, sharing together, whatever it be, over dinner, over whatever, and that those conversations get shut down because the social media vehicle has now become uh, our way of doing things. You know, sometimes, particularly on email, with, uh, as a, 
I'm going back and forth. Why can't we pick up the phone and just arrange the meeting time in 10 <laughs> seconds instead of having to spend a day trying to figure out when we're going to get together tomorrow or something like that? So I think there, you know, is, while it has the good things, it also has the bad things. And of course, uh, we at, at B'nai Israel, and we're on Facebook, and uh, we have a website, and all those things are all very important in our world and uh, a way of people seeing what we're doing and connecting with us, um, uh, etc. Are there um, are there any other areas of uh, Jewish life that you think needs to be emphasized in the world to attract the younger people? Do you see them as, uh, what, what's the spiritual dimension? Uh, what's the social dimension, the cultural dimension? What do you see among your peers? I think the biggest thing that I see, which used to make me feel different, but I realize makes me the same as everyone else, is that everyone wants to belong. Mm. Um, and I think maybe emphasizing that, again, there, there are many ways to belong, but that there's not just one way to be Jewish. Um, and that... Judaism is kind of an evolving practice in how we interpret and live our daily lives. Um, And if you choose to eat bacon at the cafe on the weekend, okay, you can still be Jewish. And we won't post those pictures on Facebook, right? Okay, just just clarifying. Um, So I think um, I think there's some tension for younger people and younger families between feeling like an individual and feeling like they want to belong. But I I think we will never, um, as we have evolved as people needing other people, animals needing other animals for our survival, um, we will always, on a fundamental need on fundamental level, want and need to belong. So I think emphasizing that part and emphasizing how, and I think we already do this, but hopefully through my role, I can make it more visible how welcoming the community is at BIJC. And I think when people come through our doors, they feel welcome. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful we can continue to do that and increase yeah. people walking through our doors. So the other day, I, uh, when we were discussing the radio show a little bit, I mentioned that many years ago I was in a young adult group, and those young adults, as I said, are probably now my age. Um, uh, a, a young man stood up and said, what I love about being Jewish is you can do whatever you want, <laughs> right? And that was a shocking statement uh, to me at that time. Mm-hmm. And so while I agree wholeheartedly that uh, our uh, container needs to be broad enough to take all different forms of connection with the life of our community and what we do as a Jewish people. There have to be certain boundaries uh, around that that help to define what it means. Otherwise, we are nothing then if we're not defined. So there, there has to be some kind of balance between uh, Anybody can come in, which is fine. Anybody can come in. But what this means to be part of the Jewish community and how we live that kind of life and what it means uh, 
in, in our souls and in, in our behaviors with each other. So there have to be certain sets of behaviors, at least, that help to create a sense of some level of conformity in order to have community. That's just the definition of a group of people coming together. They resolve that there's a certain way they're going to live, behave, that allows them to connect with each other. So I would put that caveat on the, the notion of it's open and everybody can do what they want to do in the individualism, recognizing that being part of a community in any circumstances, whether it be our community or any of the ways we form community in our society, that there, there is giving up a little bit of self in order to be uh, a part of, uh, of that community. I think that's uh, an important lesson for us to keep in mind as we do that, as we talk about that. Absolutely. And for me, actually, the, uh, it's the, some of the rituals, whether, mm-hmm. one, whether one thinks the rituals address God in some way or are just uh, meaningful in some other way. It's mm-hmm. the rituals that those ritualized behaviors that actually keep us uh, together. Absolutely. They, they form the linking uh, pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something that I've um, enjoyed just kind of getting to know the community here that there are people who um, observe Shabbat at the temple. There are people who observe Shabbat um, at the state park or at the beach. Um, so there are kind of different flavors, but I absolutely agree that there's the, um, there have to be the common things or else we're just people walking through, through life. But I think it's, um, or to me at least, maybe it's an indication of my just such a strong desire to belong, but I think it's such a, I know we've talked a little bit about, um, the, the cost, the actual the actual financial cost of joining an institution and what's the right amount? Is it too high? Or joining the temple, right. is, it, is it too high? Should we um, offer different levels and things? Um, and to me, it's such a privilege to give up a little something, whether it's um, money or a little one, um, maybe if there's something, again, that an activity or something that doesn't um, necessarily speak to me or feel doesn't exactly represent me, but to be a part of the whole um, is is such a good feeling. We recently did an event where people indicated where they were from in California, in the United States, in the world, um, and it was really fun. I actually met, um, or I uh, congregants who I knew, I didn't... Um, realized that um, that that Barry's wife Carol was born at um, Newark Beth Israel Hospital where I was born and it was amazing yeah it is amazing uh, actually when I used to facilitate groups I would uh, when I asked people to introduce I would often ask them to say what hospital were they born at and uh, the people were starting to connect even though it could have been two or three generations difference. In, uh, in age, but they were connecting over their birthplace and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So, yes, those, those things really connect us. We're, mm-hmm. we're strangers. We're social animals, and right. we connect uh, in that fashion, and it's really an important one. So, um, early in the discussion today, uh, you indicated when you were growing up, and you even indicated when I probably first met you a couple of years, a few years ago, 
that uh, you often didn't feel Jewish enough. What's that like now? I mean, simply, now I feel Jewish enough, but I think it took, I mean, nothing, I don't think I became more Jewish. I think I just stopped looking at it as a way to judge and berate and measure myself. Um, for example, growing up, the the half of my girlfriends from elementary school who I've mentioned, um, they had bat mitzvahs and um know Hebrew, and um, so that's how I sort of judge myself as not Jewish enough, and I realize it's just um, how I live and how I'm accountable to myself and the stories and lessons that I teach my kids, and even though my husband's not Jewish, he, we have a Jewish household. Um, actually, I think I told you he got us a um, mezuzah for Hanukkah. So I was so excited about because we're getting a new door. So we're going to put You're that Getting up. a new door. Yes. <laughs> good for an opener. That's good. So a mezuzah is, uh, there's a mitzvah, a commandment in the Torah that said we should write God's word on the doorpost of our homes. And it's a little box that goes on the right side of the doorway coming into a Jewish home that symbolizes that this is a, a Jewish home. And so uh, Ken got that for you, and that's great. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, thinking that uh, the story we've been talking about, your story and the story of our community, uh, which we share, um, is really a story for, even though being Jewish, it might be, have different cultural and spiritual uh, expressions than uh, the Episcopal Church or than the Catholic Church down the street or any of the number of community organizations, but the stories inside of ourselves are the same of uh, people looking for ways to belong and to be part of a community in this world and uh, go through life feeling supported uh, when things are happening in their lives. It's really an important part. It's true. It's a very true thing. Um, so any last comments before we finish up today that you'd like to make about uh, your experience, uh, about B'nai Israel, uh, etc.? And if you don't, that's totally okay, too. I'm not sure I have any more comments, but I'm I'm excited about the summer we're embarking on um, doing the backyard uh -huh. at the at the center. Um, so for everyone who who goes there, and also for the Ghana Israel preschoolers who obviously use it every day. Um, so I think that will only enhance what we have um, available to our congregants. Um, yes. Well, thank you, Rory Noguchi, for being with us in the studio today to talk a little bit about your journey and your current work at B'nai Israel, hoping that these messages not apply only to uh, our experience in the Jewish community, but to others who are seeking ways to connect and looking for ways in the world to find meaning. You've been listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCA, LP, Petaluma, California, and 103.3 FM.
KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. This is DJ Saeed, host of Full Circle Sessions. Every Friday afternoon from 3 to 5 p.m., my show presents incredible dance music from across the decades. Join me for two hours of musical journey featuring the best in eclectic dance music. Get your weekend started here at 103.3 KPCA. Are you tired of the mainstream tunes that other stations play over the airwaves? I'm sure you crave more diversity. Free Range Radio KPCA just might be a station for you. We host local producers that play anything from contemporary jazz to R&B to surf music. Tune in on 103.3 FM and online at kpca.fm. I'm Matt McGuire. I'm Jim Thomas. And we are Two Moves and a Mic. We bring you commentary on recent topical events we find interesting and important. And we also bring the lighter side of news. Our show airs every Friday at noon on Free Range Radio at KPCA 103.3 FM. Join us this Friday, won't you? I heard there was a new radio station in town. Oh, oh, you mean Free Range Radio KPCA at 103.3 FM? Yeah, that's right. How did you know about that? Well, I just looked where all good information comes from, Facebook. Just follow the Free Range Radio KPCA page and join the discussion. Just keep it polite. Facebook? Yeah. Our on-air personalities will post updates and information on their shows, as well as events and news concerning the station. KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. (laughs) 